for anyone who's listening who is feeling burnt out at the moment that just that reminder it's not just you that this is so many doctors right now and it's not that there's something wrong with you or that it's your fault these are big system issues but having said that there is that hope that there are things that you can do about it and so I just really encourage you to take that step and reach out to somebody for support or just to open up and start sharing these feelings and acknowledging it. Welcome to the Balanced Medics Handover Podcast. Are you questioning whether medicine is right for you and not sure what to do next? If so, you've come to the right place. This podcast is full of real examples of doctors that have gone down different paths to prove that it's possible to transform your life and that it's never too late. I'm your host, Isabella, the founder of Balance Medics and a doctor that left clinical medicine. If you're ready to make changes now and live a life more aligned with your own values, coaching could be for you. You don't need to stay stuck. Reach out and see what's possible at balancemedics.com forward slash coaching. And now to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Handover Podcast. I'm so excited about this episode and our special guest. Today we are going to be talking about burnout. And we are very lucky to have Amy Imms here. She's a doctor, mother of five, and founder of The Burnout Project. The Burnout Project offers counseling, plans for self-care, recharge packages, and a book by Amy on your first 10 steps to take when you have burnout. The Burnout Project also runs events and retreats, the most recent being the online Thrive Symposium focused on beating burnout and finding balance in work and life. So let's hand over to Amy. How are you? I'm lovely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for coming on. I'm I'm really excited to talk about burnout with you because you're focusing so much of your efforts on it. First, can we hear a bit more about your story and and how you got to where you are now? Yeah. So going right back, I followed that traditional uh, path into medicine, straight out of college, into medical school, into internship. Uh, And then I ended up deciding to do general practice training. So I did a couple of RMO years and then started doing general practice training part-time while I had children. So then I got to the point of having uh, four very young children and studying for exams. And that was when I experienced burnout myself. And that was on the background of having been really aware of seeing burnout around me for a long time. So even before I got into medicine, I had had a friend's much older brother who was a a surgical registrar who had taken his own life. Now, obviously, there's probably a lot more going on than just burnout there, but that initial awareness that the medical world wasn't all that it often seems from the outside. And then as a junior doctor and a medical student in the hospital, I think like a lot of people, we see people around us go ahead um, a little bit beyond us. So they appear to be very enthusiastic, compassionate, lovely doctors and then something seems to happen and it's often as they get into their registrar training and those stresses increase and they start to get more cynical and grumpy we start to see bits of bullying coming out 
And I often just reflected on what's going on here, what happens to these people as they go through training that causes such a drastic shift in the way they relate to the people around them and the way they seem to uh, just be in that medical world. So I'd had all of that in my mind beforehand and often been curious and wondered about why that happens and what we can do. And so then when I had that experience myself as well, was really that trigger to go, right, what can we actually do about this and uh, actually do something practical to make a change because it didn't feel as though anything really was being done about it and I couldn't see any changes happening even though there were some conversations around that issue more generally. So you saw that there was not much work being done in it and you decided to to do that work? Yeah, and back then, so this was going back about six years, seven years, and there really wasn't much of a conversation around burnout, but there was recognition around mental illness, but the term burnout wasn't particularly used a whole lot. It was just starting to be used a lot more frequently before COVID. And then once COVID started, then that's really ramped up that conversation and made it much more at the forefront of people's minds, which I think is really good. It's really bad that the extra pressures of COVID have increased burnout, <laughs> um, but there has been that benefit that has facilitated that discussion and I think made people feel a lot more legitimate speaking up about it, that it, there's this common language around why people are burnt out. If you say it's because of all these extra impacts of COVID, there's this instant recognition from other people that, yes, I get it, I know what you're talking about. Whereas I think what happened before is that people's experiences were much more diverse and they still are behind those COVID pressures. And so when they tried to share why they were struggling, it was much harder to feel that they were understood and people really got where they were coming from. And so they felt much more dismissed and minimised and uh, victim blamed in that process. Speaking about how people are more aware of burnout now and understanding, what is burnout? How would you describe it? There have been varying definitions over the years. I mean, this is something that's been recognised as an issue for many thousands of years to some degree, but it's only become more formally recognised in about the last 50 years. So the most recent formal definition has been the World Health Organisation. So they talk about burnout as being the result of chronic workplace stress that hasn't been successfully managed. They really deliberately talk about the workplace, and I think it is important to point out that it happens beyond the workplace as well, that we get volunteers and students and um, carers, all these, any major role we have in life, whether it's paid or unpaid, we can burn out in. There is a, another definition, there's quite a few definitions, but this particular one is from a physician, a professor in the US, uh, Gunderman, and he talks about burnout as being the accumulation of hundreds or thousands of tiny disappointments, each one hardly noticeable on its own. And I really like this definition because, one, it's a bit more <laughs> colourful and you can kind of really feel it, but quite often there are these big issues but it's not just those big issues that cause burnout, that it does feel like it's just all these tiny little things that on their own might not have a significant effect, but there are just so many of them and it feels so relentless and they build up. And I think that reference to tiny disappointments in there uh, also gives that allusion to the concept of moral injury as well, which isn't always sitting behind burnout. There are a lot of people with burnout who don't have an element of moral injury there, but it certainly can be. So that's that feeling that uh, we're very aware as doctors of the suffering of our patients and wanting to help, but we can't for whatever reason access that help that those patients need, whether that's because we have our own limitations and we just can't provide it because we can't give endlessly to everybody uh, or that we just can't access the services they need to actually be able to support them in the way that we want to. Yeah, that's a great definition. And I think it kind of leads into the 
how do you notice burnout affecting your life? Sometimes it really creeps up on you. Yeah, in fact, usually it creeps up. So it's this slow evolution of stresses and people often really don't recognise it because it's slow. So we don't notice that slight day-to-day shift. And this is one of the reasons why it's really important to listen out for what other people say. If someone else is expressing some kind of concern about the way you are, then it might be worth stepping back and reflecting. We have all sorts of Uh, internal monologues where we justify things and we think oh it's just everybody's like this life is just stressful these days this is just the medical world Um, I'm not completely depressed so it must be okay we just have all sorts of reasons that we give for why things are the way they are and I tend to find most people don't acknowledge it until either they sit down and more formally assess it so we're often doing little burnout assessments in workshops and stuff and quite often there people will say that they hadn't really thought they were burnt out but when they went through that list they realized that actually things were worse than they thought it was and that they probably should start doing something about it but the other main way that people end up recognizing it is when they hit a crisis point that burnout has got bad enough that it's having a big enough effect that they can't ignore it anymore so that might be that they've been drinking alcohol to cope and it's got to the point that they can see that that's an issue now that they're drinking too much or they're noticing withdrawal when they don't drink Uh, it might be that a relationship falls apart that they can see that those stresses and train strains of burnout are disrupting those relationships feeling disconnected from kids Uh, it might be a mistake at work Uh, another common one is people commenting that they've noticed a reduced empathy for their patients so they've perhaps snapped at a patient or done something where they feel like it's quite out of character for them the other out of character thing people sometimes notice is a difference in how emotional they are so they might normally feel like they're a pretty put together kind of person and can remain relatively detached and objective and they find themselves crying or just feeling more emotional than they usually do and that can be quite confronting because when you're not used to that as the way that you cope and respond to the world uh, you wonder what's going on and why am I behaving so differently. Yeah that's a great list of different ways it can show up in different people and before you started the burnout project when you became more aware of it how did you first notice it affecting your own life? Yeah so with mine it was as I say it was like most people that it creeps up pretty slowly and it was a whole lot of different things and I was justifying it so at the point where I burnt out I was the breadwinner but I was a part-time registrar so there was a lot of financial strain I had four kids about seven and under back then none of whom were sleeping very much at all as I say I was trying to fit in study around that I'd been supporting a family member through uh, cancer treatment I'd had the anniversary of my childhood best friend's death soon followed by a call from the police to say that one of my patients had taken their own life. So it was this accumulation of lots of different things, but it's very easy to go, oh, but it's, you know, that's just work and that's reasonable that I feel like that because this has just happened and this will get better because this is just a a temporary thing. I just need to push through this and move on with that. And so for me, that moment where I realised actually this is a bit more serious and I need to do something about it was I was sitting at home one night after work and I remember as everything was going on around me, kids are playing, my husband's cooking dinner and just having this feeling that would everyone be better off if I wasn't there? Am I, I felt that I was failing in all those different roles in my life and for me that was that realisation that, yeah, I need to actually do something about this. 
Uh, and so that then started that journey of figuring out what do I then do? Who do I talk to? Where do I feel safe disclosing this kind of stuff? And I think like most people, you have people you go to who don't end up being as supportive or providing what you need. And I certainly found there were a few people who were, were really helpful. But a lot of the psychologists that I'd seen over the years I found weren't particularly helpful for burnout specifically, that for depression and anxiety, yes, very helpful, but it just really wasn't providing what I needed. So it was a long journey of really navigating things myself and reaching out and drawing different pieces from lots of different conversations, but I was very active in that. And it made me concerned for somebody who wasn't as aware, who didn't know the health system as well, they would have given up so much earlier and not got that help that they needed. And so that's when I thought, well, I I want to provide that help for other people that I really struggled to find for myself. Interestingly, I was talking to um, Professor Gordon Parker, who founded the Black Dog Institute. So he does a lot of work. He's a psychiatrist. He does a lot of work with burnout. And we did an interview recently and chatting to him he had exactly the same feeling that burnout specifically really isn't covered well in our mental health sector that a lot of that training is around the official mental health diagnosis burnout's not recognized as mental health diagnosis and so it's really under recognized and mismanaged and often people with burnout are considered to either just not have anything it's a bit of stress you know we don't really need to do a whole lot here and minimize it or it's mistreated as anxiety or depression or something else that's an amazing story going from a moment of basically you know very very dark moment in your life and turning it into something that can help not only yourself but helping other people as well and I think you're exactly right there burnout is definitely not really well managed in the current health system and even if you do reach out and call for help sometimes it's not always help that you receive unfortunately and we do need to to change that and how can we prevent or protect ourselves from developing burnout like let's say someone is getting a lot of stresses at work but they're not they're still kind of coping and staying on top of things before you get into burnout how can we prevent that yeah I mean this is one of these things where there's no one-size-fits-all approach we really need to look at that individual situation I think that what comes into here that's really important is the idea of resilience because I know for a lot of people especially in the medical field uh, there's been a feeling that the solution proposed often is to boost personal resilience and then there's a reaction which is very justifiable that hang on a second here this is like system issues that are causing this it's not because I'm not resilient so first I just want to acknowledge that for anyone to have even got to the end of medical school let alone into these junior doctor years and beyond, then we already know that you're one of the most resilient people on the planet. You kind of have to be by definition. So a big part of medical burnout is the system and we need system changes to really make a significant difference there. The challenge there is that we often don't have that power to actually be able to influence that and create those changes and certainly not very quickly and certainly not from a point of burnout so if we want to create those system changes often we need to recover first and then be able to provide that advocacy or affect some kind of change there so in the end when we're looking at responding to burnout from an individual level when it's you who's experiencing that then we really have to look at what we have control over and what can we do there so coming back to that idea of resilience, for example, yes, we're all very resilient, but we also also have capacity to improve that. There are always new strategies that we can learn. If we look at 
10 doctors who all witness the same traumatic event, we get 10 very different responses, right? So it's not just about those circumstances that we're in. It's also about how our brain has learnt to respond to those over time. So there is a lot of scope there for how we can change the way that we internally respond to circumstances. Some of it is coming back to those basics as well. You know, we all hear time and time again how important things like sleep and nutrition and exercise are, and we hear it so much that we often dismiss it. But those foundations can be really important and for some people more important than others. And although we might not be able to change systems, we also do need to look at where we have influence over those systems. So we might not be able to change a whole department or the way a hospital runs, but we might be able to set some clear boundaries about what we will and won't do. So for example, that might be that you may be able to say, well, I'm not going to do unpaid after time, or I'm going to leave at this time and hand over even when there is work still to be done, or I am going to take my lunch break unless there's a code blue or something happening, I'm going to take my lunch break and those jobs are just going to wait and be done later. So it's looking at those simple things that we can do and that we do have influence over, uh, getting some support with those internal mechanisms as well. It's also really valuable to have somebody to talk to about all of this and it can be hard to navigate a safe space to do that. We're unfortunately do still have to worry about stigma and reputation and we don't just want to openly tell everybody about all our struggles but if we can find a mentor a colleague a professional somebody where we have that safe space to share these thoughts then that is incredibly valuable and I think coming right back to the beginning as well when we first recognize that something is not right often one of those big features of burnout is exhaustion fatigue we also need to make sure that we've got our own GP and then we actually go and see them because it's not uncommon that we have somebody with burnout who is also anemic or got a thyroid disorder or something else going on that they might also be burnt out but obviously you're not going to make a whole lot of progress unless you treat those other things as well so we do need to make sure that we actually take these symptoms seriously and recognize that there's a massive overlap between burnout and mental and physical illnesses that's such great advice and it's it's such a good point about the, the foundations because we often do dismiss that. We all know that, but it is sometimes hard to implement it, especially with shift work and then drawing the boundaries. And I think a lot of doctors feel that way. You feel like you need to say yes to everything and take on everything and it is hard to say no to people and you're kind of worried how that will be taken. But drawing boundaries is so important and learning how to do that early on. And especially in those junior doctor years. So we know that the highest risk time for burnout is in that first couple of years of being out of medical school and then it slowly drops. There are some other really high risk times that come up later than that. So things like when we transition between um, responsibilities and achieve a fellowship. And But those first couple of years are really, really hard. And a big part of that is that we have such low autonomy and we don't feel like we can speak up about things because we fear that we don't quite navigate the system we feel like we're the bottom of the chain so no one's going to listen to us and we just have to do whatever we're told and this again is where it's really helpful to have that external person to talk to so whether that's a professional or whether it's perhaps a registrar or a consultant somebody who you can actually talk about that first before you approach it because there are definitely ways you can set boundaries that are going to get everybody offside and get you a bad reputation but if we can work out how do we actually convey that in a way that is going to be received well and maintain those relationships and provide for your own needs and that's what we want to achieve there yeah definitely that's so important and to, like you said to, to start early because the junior doctor years are where you don't feel very in control of of your life really because it's a lot of just people telling you what to do and we just saw the recent 
ABC article about junior doctors being told not to nap or they'll have furniture removed or workload increase kind of thing. So it's very much almost like a, a naughty child narrative. Yeah, and that's so disappointing, isn't it, that that we're fighting for this recognition from the system that these issues are there and that we need solutions provided to uh, around those issues. And sometimes their systems don't change because it feels like it's, it's too big or it's too expensive to actually implement those changes. But there are a lot of strategies that are either low cost or no cost that could easily be implemented if we had the right people actually caring about that and able to do that and the example of providing a place for somebody to nap on night shift I mean that's the perfect example of something that takes almost no resources to achieve that and to help we know how damaging lack of sleep is if we've got hospitals and the doctor overnight who are exhausted and you know it's the equivalent to whatever alcohol blood level that is in terms of concentration and risk of mistakes and all of that sort of stuff, then surely we should be doing anything we can to optimise their sleep and help them to manage their fatigue well. So I think, as you say, reacting to that in that way, I think shows a huge disconnect between people in management and the people who are on the floor and a real misunderstanding about what's actually going on there and what those stresses and strains and what those solutions could be. It's definitely disconnect between what it's like to do, you know, a seven string strings of nights, you know, one after the other and how the sleep debt really can compound. Uh, and you're making hard decisions. It's not it's not an easy routine shift. You're covering patients you've never met before. And you, it requires a lot of brain power. So it's definitely from someone that's never experienced that kind of kind of work absolutely and and often on those night shifts although you in theory have support you don't always have support either sometimes those registrars or consultants who are there to answer your questions are caught up in their own emergencies overnight so that decision making ability is is so important and as you say that compounded effect of sleep deprivation really builds up so we need to be supporting those most junior people in our hospital the most uh, what could we say to a junior doctor in the middle of burnout right now because I know when you're in the middle of it it's very hard to to take the first steps to to change things yeah and I think one big part of that is just that encouragement to actually acknowledge it that it is a legitimate thing that just because you've only just started a medical job doesn't mean that you can't feel burnt out you know we're going into this we know that People are already exhausted after medical school, right? Like we've got data that in medical school we've got a much higher rate of mental illness, suicidal ideation, psychological stress than the general population, most of that being unmanaged, so not um, professionally treated or anything, and that's what we're coming into internship with. So it's not surprising that people struggle with internship because they're already depleted from those previous years. So acknowledging that, yes, if that's the way you feel, then that's legitimate, reach out for help find a GP, uh, if you've got supportive supervisors or uh, like JMO managers or anything, then making sure that you're speaking to them if you feel safe doing that. Recognise that people will not speak up about it in general. So a lot of people feel like it's just them. So I very frequently get told, why is it just me? Everyone else in my year seems to be coping just fine and I'm struggling so much. 
And I can guarantee that most of them are not. Some of the data shows up to 80 to 90% of junior doctors are experiencing some degree of burnout. So it's definitely not just you and that you don't have to do that alone, but there are things that you can do about it. So again, people think, oh, but it's not depression or anxiety or something. So what could anyone do if I go and talk to them about it? Uh, That if you get those right people to support you, there are, are things that you can do even without changing the system. And it takes that first step to reach out, which isn't easy. And this is why we really encourage people to have their GP established in medical school or early in their intern year if they've just moved somewhere, because it's really hard if that first contact with them is opening up about something like this. So at least if you've seen them a couple of times about something else and you've got a little bit of rapport there, then you might feel more comfortable having these conversations. The other fear that people often have is around APRA reporting and not wanting to go to a professional about it. And there really the APRA guidelines have become a bit more clear over recent years that we there, there only needs to be a report if there's a direct concern about the safety of other people essentially. So there should be a very, very limited number of people who have any kind of report to APRA and in fact by seeking help then in most cases, that almost by definition says you don't need reporting because you're then managing it well to manage those risks. But it can be worth having an open conversation. If that's something that you're concerned about, then you can say to your GP, whoever, hey, you know, how do you navigate this kind of stuff with Apple reporting? Are you aware of the recent updates to it? And just having that conversation to see where they're at, because there are certainly people who perhaps might have not stayed up as up to date with it and might have a misguided idea that you need to report every doctor with a mental illness or something like that. So have those conversations, but don't be afraid to reach out because uh, most people are very reasonable in terms of how they manage that. But it is, yeah, just reaching out and, and having that conversation and getting some kind of support and having ongoing support so if you can have somebody who's not just there for one or two appointments because those junior doctor years feel long while you're in them even though things improve significantly once you can get past that in most cases uh, you really need somebody whether that is a professional or a mentor or someone who you can maybe debrief with and connect with once a month or even more frequently depending on what's going on there to have that connection and that chance for reflection because Again, as we miss burnout, we also miss it getting worse or recurring. So having something that prompts you to pause and reflect and discuss is going to help along that process. That's a great point there of reaching out and also making clear that APRA reporting is a very high threshold. Uh, I just went to the Australasian Doctors' Health Conference and we had APRA come to chat about that as well. And it needs to be direct at work putting patients at risk, for example, drinking too much alcohol at home, that's not a reporting requirement. It's if you're drinking at work, that's a a reporting requirement. So we need to, to lower that alarm with everyone about when to report it's good to get help, like you said. If you let it go too long, it's worse for your health and and maybe things could unravel. So it's good to get help early. Yeah, definitely. And I think I just wanted to point out that another reason why it's really important to get help is, as I say, to differentiate it from something else. So because we tend to downplay it ourselves, we could have quite a significant major depression or anxiety disorder or triggered an eating disorder, all sorts of things that can come out of burnout. The other thing that we're not very good at assessing is our level of safety. So we also need somebody else to assess whether this is something that we can slowly manage you know, wait six weeks for an appointment and that sort of thing? Or do we actually need to be a little bit more firm with that and go, actually, you need to take 
two weeks off work or four weeks off work and we need to do this and this and this to get things rolling. So having somebody else to objectively say that and because we also feel a lot of guilt, right, we're very aware of how stretched systems are and that there's not much give in the rosters and so for us to not be at work for a reason that isn't a broken leg or getting your gallbladder out or something, then we tend to not do that because it feels not legitimate or we feel guilty about it. So I think it's really helpful to have somebody else say whether or not that's something that's required definitely definitely I know people say things like oh I kind of wish I had an accident or something so I can have a legitimate time off work and we don't want to get to that part and having someone that tells you that will be really helpful so you're super passionate about what you're doing I can see that you're it's something that you really do care about what advice would you give someone so that they can find what they value and what they're passionate about yeah i And I think this is a tricky part of medicine, right? Because sometimes we struggle to find that passion. Sometimes we find a passion area, but then the reality of what the work in that area is like might not match up to other things that are important to us. So it's really tricky to figure out where to go and what to do in medicine. And I think if if we really know what are those things in life that are really meaningful to us and important to us and give us a feeling of um, contribution and fulfilment, then that's really helpful. And then figuring out, does that actually have to be something that I want to incorporate into my work or do I want to do that separately? So for some people, their passion area might be something that that they could do as a career, but it might, for example, be really super low paid or take a long time to build up to a professional level. And in that case, they might not want to switch to a career in that, for example, because they might have other lifestyle goals and other things that are important to them. And so then it's going, well, do I, is there a way that I can have my clinical career alongside that then funds me being able to do this in my other, um, other parts of my time? Or is there an area of passion that we want to incorporate into our medical work or change direction with? Depending on how much of a deviation that is from what we're already doing, we also need to be realistic about some other things that might go along with that. So if we're making quite a significant change or going back and retraining, then a lot of those options do come usually with a pay cut and more study and and a period of time there to get to that point that I think often by the time we're thinking about this, we're really burnt out and we just want an instant kind of overnight change. You know, we don't want to have to go through all of that or have those sacrifices for that. But if we take, for example, general practice, then there might be niche areas that you can move into that are already within your broader scope of practice, but you're just narrowing down to some degree. And obviously that kind of thing may come with no extra training or something that you can just do on the job and you can almost make that change overnight or over a period of a few months or so. I think starting with what is that passion and if you can, reaching out to other people in that area, especially if it's doctors who've done something in that area because then you're getting that specific advice relating to navigating that within a a medical career. But anyone really to get that feel for what are things like on the ground in that job it's very easy for us to just want to escape like you alluded to before that we think I just want to have an accident I just want to become a florist I just want to run away on a plane and never come back so often we find other options more desirable because we want to escape the struggles that we're in when the reality of those other situations might just come with their own whole new set of challenges and we end up in a place where it's not actually any better, it's just different. So I think getting that reality check of really speaking to people on the ground and getting to know what that is and what it involves is really important. 
Yeah, definitely getting advice from people that have done it before. I want to know what you're offering now. Let us know what Burnout Project is doing at the moment. Yeah. So when I first started, my very first idea was that I had a lot of patients coming in who uh, were either coming in very late in burnout or it would be their husband or their wife or somebody else saying, oh, this person won't come in, but they're really struggling and I don't know how to help them. And so I designed these burnout packages so that people could send them to someone they were worried about as something active to do. That person receives it, often anonymously, and it gives them that little prompt to go, oh, am I I actually struggling? You know, someone's cared enough to actually go and buy this package for me. And they often have nice things like tea and soap and um, candles and stuff like that. And then they also have the copy of my book, Burn Out Your First 10 Steps, and a workbook to go with it and things like that to try to prompt some action. Um, so I've still got those available and people often buy those as gifts or a lot of people just buy them for themselves, which I love even more that people are recognizing it in themselves. And then beyond that, I've got two major arms of what I do. So one is trying to contribute to the system changes. So going into workplaces and talking to medical students and interns and uh, registrar groups and uh, providing workshops and training to help both from a management perspective as well as for people to care for themselves in those positions. And then the other major arm of what I do is working with individuals. So one of the really great things that I found there is a a group program and we're just about to start a new group for the Thriving Together community and that has been a really powerful space. But as I was saying, creating those safe spaces where we can talk about these sorts of things is so important and it's been really lovely seeing people form those connections and uh, not feeling alone in these struggles that they've got these people that they can connect with over time and share that journey with and celebrate that progress and the tears when we celebrate you know there's there's so much that goes on in those spaces as people sort of evolve so the the group program is one of the main things that I do and then I also do one-on-one counseling telehealth counseling for people in Australia and then I've got some online courses and as you mentioned before Thrive Symposiums I've run that for the last couple of years and that's been a really lovely space of drawing together a whole lot of different experts related to this field and being able to share those snippets with people to try to provide some of that ideas and encouragement and hope and a bit of a sense of direction for people who are struggling and to help people recognize perhaps that they are in that place where they need to do something about it and that there are things that they can do. That's great. So there's options for people to work in their own time, come individually or in group settings, symposiums. Yeah, that's that's right because everyone has different preferences about how they go about this as well. And so that's part of what I wanted to do is recognize that that there are different options, that there's options to read, to interact with online, to interact with other people in a group or individually. So people can find something that suits them. And how can people best find you online and, and find your book and, and reach out? So theburnoutproject.com.au is where everything really sits. And then you can email me info at theburnoutproject.com.au and I'm on Facebook under The Burnout Project, Instagram under The Burnout Project with a couple of underscores in there, but I think it still shows up if you search for it. Uh, And then I'm on LinkedIn under Dr. Amy Inns as well. So find me any of those places and um, I try to share as much as I can on there, but I keep that website, that central hub for finding all those different places for support and the books and booking workshops and all that sort of stuff. 
Great. And we'll put all that in the show notes. And before you go, is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, look, I just want to restate what I said before, that for anyone who's listening, who is feeling burnt out at the moment, that just that reminder, it's not just you, that this is so many doctors right now. And it's not that there's something wrong with you or that it's your fault. These are big system issues. But having said that, there is that hope that there are things that you can do about it. And so I just really encourage you to take that step and reach out to somebody for support or just to open up and start sharing these feelings and acknowledging it and just taking one tiny step forward. You know, these are big challenges we're facing and sometimes we feel like they need big solutions, but often that journey just starts with just one very small step that we can then build upon. I love that. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. And I think this will be so helpful for everyone who's working in the hospital right now and and anyone else that, like you said, burnout can be in work, out of work. So uh, it's really important, this conversation. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you. You've been listening to the Balance Medics Handover podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, I'd love for you to take a minute to rate and review this podcast and click the follow button. For more resources, check out the Balance Medics website. The link to this will be in the show notes below. See you next episode.